Uh, well, good afternoon. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome you to this webinar on digital operational resilience, asking, are you ready? Um, you may find out the answer to that question um, as we go through uh, the presentations today. And very glad to have uh, colleagues from Cloudsoft with us uh, to uh, present and to engage with you this afternoon. Um, just by way of uh, introduction, thanks first of all to say thank you to our sponsors at the FS Club. Um, our sponsors are very generous with their um, ability to uh, leave us to range widely uh, over the subjects of technology, finance, innovation and science. Um, and we're very, very grateful uh, for their support. Um, <clears throat> you might know me, I'm Mike Wardle, I'm a director of ZN um, and I'm here to uh, chair the event today. Um, so I'll pick up later on the question and answer session. Um, and looking at the program uh, for today, um, you'll have a very brief introduction from me, but my job is really to get out of the way uh, and leave the floor to Vicky Glynn and Alistair Hodge from Cloudsoft, who will be uh, the main presenters. Um, just to say, if you ha haven't used to go to webinar before, um, there is a question uh, tab on the dashboard on your screen. Uh, that's where you can type in the questions that um, come to you during the presentation. And please do um, put a question or type the question in at any point during the session. Um, and we'll pick up those uh, at the question answer session um, in about 25 minutes time. Um, we will um, be recording the event. So just so you know, there'll be a recording available after the event. Um, and we'll e email out a link uh, to that uh, when it's up and up and live. Um, finally, just say if you do ask a question, we'll pass on contact details to Vicky and Alistair. Um, so if there's any um, need for a follow-up conversation, uh, that can be facilitated. Um, and I think that's all it is for me, for <coughs> all, all from me by way of introduction. So I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Vicky Glynn, Head of Strategic Growth at Cloudsoft, and Alistair Hodges, Principal Engineer at Cloudsoft, um, to talk about digital resilience. Um, and over to you guys. Great, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining our, our conversation today on digital operational resilience. And are, are we ready? So as we just uh, get started, let's, uh, by way of introduction, let's talk a little bit about the agenda for today. So we're gonna just talk a little bit about the background to resilience and regulation and why the regulators are so concerned about the subject of resilience. We're also going to talk about what the regulators want and what you can do to comply and deep dive a little bit into that. So as I was mentioned, as Mike mentioned, you have myself and Alistair uh, Hodge on the call. I'm going to let Alistair just introduce himself. Pleasure to virtually meet you all. I'm a, a techie guy, so I've been steeped in application development and solution architecture for the last 25 years. Um, been with Cloudsoft for uh, quite a long time now, uh, over a decade. So uh, enjoy talking to our customers around uh, technical and business challenges and how the, the many cloud toolboxes and technical toolboxes can be wielded effectively to help solve some of those. So delighted to be here talking to you. Great, and I'm Vicky Glenn. So as I as was said, I've got the rather grand title of Head of Strategic Growth and what that means in Cloudsoft, to, to which I'm relatively newbie, just being here for the last six months. Um, but I work with our customers right from some of our earliest engagements with our customers right through to managing some of our largest uh, strategic accounts, such as large global banks who are using our resilience product. And I've also had 20 years before working in Cloudsoft across 
um, across working in IT projects with many uh, organizations of, of different sizes and tackling those hard gnarly problems of how do you manage your entire uh, environment, particularly around things like resilience and, and security. So with those introductions, a little bit about CloudSoft. Uh, today, uh, CloudSoft has two business units. We deliver powerful software to our clients today. Some, as I mentioned, the lar world's largest banks, some of the world's largest defense contractors, really to make simple how you manage resilient workloads across hybrid estates. So no matter where your workload is, whether that's on-premise or in the different cloud, and how you manage um, some of the, the real concerns that you have of keeping it secure and compliant and resilient. We also uh, work with customers to advise them on how they might migrate or not to cloud and how we and how they can keep their own IT solutions secure and resilient as well. So with that in mind, I'm going to just talk a little bit about resilience. So rather than death by PowerPoint, Alistair and I are going to literally have a conversation with this. So first of all, let's start with a key question, Alistair. Why are regulators so concerned with resilience? Yeah, that is the key question, isn't it? I think, um, I think there are a number of factors which have made 2021 the year to think about operational resilience and um, very close to that, the resilience of underpinning IT systems, which is obviously where we play a very active role. I, th I think now more than ever, we are incredibly dependent on banks and financial services institutions and the services they provide. They, they impact many areas of our lives and our ability to go about day-to-day -day living. Um, those firms themselves are now competing fiercely with each other more than ever before, bringing out um, modern new products, new channels of, of inter interacting with their accounts, mobile apps, internet banking, and so on. And they're competing for market share. They're competing for our business in a, a very competitive space. So the pace of change has increased. Um, the, the rate of innovation has gone through the roof. And as a result of that, release uh, new products are being released much more frequently uh, than ever before. And Part of that, uh, that creates a bit of a problem because with uh, frequent releases, we often encounter frequent problems due to sloppy change control. And we've uh, noted, noticed various, uh, various major outages over the last few years. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to one or two of these uh, more famous outages that made the front page of the papers uh, in, in due course as we, as we further this conversation. But uh, the regulators have taken note because these outages have affected people's ability to go about their day-to-day -day lives. A large impact on consumers, a large impact on a very large number of people due to preventable failures in IT systems. The, the financial services landscape has also become very convoluted and complex. There are now more players than ever before, more firms. Uh, there's a much greater specialization of, of skills and talent leading to a higher degree of outsourcing to third parties than ever before. Uh, these vendors are offering very specialist services from entitlements and know your customer style products to core banking systems to, well, you name it, any IT system that, that may be in use within firms. And the whole system, the entire financial machinery of the nation, and in fact, of the continent has become incredibly interconnected which obviously increases the risk of a whole system, a systemic 
failure of the whole system, and that scares the pants off the regulators, which is why now is, is the time that the regulators are sharpening their focus and, and causing firms to do the same. Yeah, it's funny to think about in my lifetime, obviously, we were at the point where we could actually count the number of applications that we had to work with across all org organizations. And now it's becoming increasingly difficult that even within one single organization, and I'm thinking of a large scale bank, the number of applications that they might have actually matches what we all would have had 20 years ago. So that, you know, massive explosion of application landscape has been huge. And I guess um, as well, that diversity of how we manage and where our workloads are is also significant as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's become a lot more hybrid and a lot more diverse, a lot more, how would you say, heterogeneous. Um, the digital platform on which these workloads sit no longer resides in a single nicely delineated place called data center or VMware. Um, banks and other financial services firms, insurance companies, for instance, and fintechs, they're consuming services from all over the place. Um, the, the previous slide you showed with the, the increasing spaghetti was interesting to me because not only did banks have a smaller number of systems, but they ran them all themselves. They knew exactly where they were running and they had full control over the application stack, the software, and the underpinning infrastructure. Whereas now, like, like we mentioned a, a few moments ago, we're consuming, we're outsourcing more to specialist vendors. We're outsourcing infrastructure to data center providers, where we depend on them for building security, for heating and cooling and resilient power supplies and network connections. Um, and you take that a step further with cloud providers, where we're not just outsourcing just infrastructure, but uh, entirely new styles of software products that we can use to build our applications. But also, you know, the diverse tooling, we're all using a range of tools, point solutions at various times through the, the whole life cycle of our software products. Um, and I guess what's, what's also challenging for these, for these um, organizations in terms of resilience is that when you're an end user, your access point into what you want might be something very simple. It might be something like I'm accessing my bank app. app. I want to pay a partner or a supplier. I want to. I want to be able to see my account statement. So you don't really care what goes down in all of this complexity. You just care that you're not able to access your system. Absolutely, and I think that's that's the point of view that the regulators are taking. You know, we had some pretty prominent outages. Here we go. Why does the internet keep breaking? Asks the BBC after the, the very prominent outage of Fastly, yeah. a service that practically nobody knows even exists. It's a content content distribution network and distributed cash. Nobody knows that that system exists. Well, no, no lay people know that it exists. And yet it's critical to the delivery of many of the services we depend on. And, and that, that naturally extends into banking products because banks are riding that same wave of technology innovation that Facebook and media companies and every other firm on the planet has gone through. They're riding that same crest of that wave. Yeah, and we know that that kind of resilience has a real 
a direct impact on the bottom line. So we know, for example, um, you know, quoted here, the TSB one, a, a bill of 330 million. But what's interesting is that impact isn't just always negative, it can be positive. So, you know, Fastly's share price during the period from which they went down and then were able to recover and restore service particularly likely because it didn't impact on the US working day and um, was a savior for them, but actually their share price went up because of their response and ability to respond to their outage. So the impact on the bottom line is not always negative, but it's certainly there. I think so. And I think, you know, one of the aspects of certainly the, the DORA, one of the, we'll come to talk about this later, but the, the mm -hmm. transparency and information sharing that is, uh, a key underpinning of DORA, I think is just following best practice that technology companies have been adopting for the last few years. Um, we uh, Research has been done that shows customers are more forgiving and have a higher, um, a more positive disposition towards companies that are transparent about their failings and take steps to ensure they don't happen again. So I'm not surprised actually that um, that uh, share prices rose, as, as I'm sure they did um, Monzo, the, the the challenger bank the internet only challenger bank had a quite high profile outage early in its history they fixed it and they communicated very clearly throughout the incident and afterwards including what the root cause of that failure had been and you know i i believe they got kudos for doing that from their customers and from the wider tech community so indeed you know this resilience becomes not just a regulatory concern but it's a strategic business priority because of some of the things that we've said about costs and we know that downtime definitely does have a cost but it also can have business uh, you know a real business impact in terms of reputation and for the lucky that is a positive impact on their re reputation for most organizations that will be an incredibly uh, you know negative impact on their reputation and yet, despite this, we also know that people don't necessarily make the right investments or the need or the depth of investment to present to prevent some of these issues as well. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, we, we could ask, we could you know pontificate what was the cost, the financial cost of that uh, Daily Mail front page mm -hmm. that you showed on the previous slide to TSB. Yeah. We will never know. It's intangible. You know what what would have happened if a uh, a bigger story had had been splashed. A different story had been mm -hmm. splashed on the front page of the tabloids that day. We'll never know. But I, I would remind us. I think it's it's helpful to remember that financial services companies and banks are in competition with each other, and the barriers to switching are now lower than ever before. So companies want to keep their customers, and they do that by offering good customer service. So despite you know the IDC's analysis on the cost of downtime per hour or despite the fines coming down the pipe from regulators or the criminal liability or the potential suspension of a license to, to operate, actually the, a, a very large cost is gonna be your customer flight. They'll yeah, take, their, they'll take yes, their customer yes. with them. Great, so I think what we're saying here is that resilience is a strategic business priority. So regulation is not the reason to go ahead and protect your business and, and make sure that you can recover from faults. But it is, you know, uh, certainly driving a timeline, I would suggest, around resilience. Um, yeah, very, very much so, yeah. And, and this timeline is, in some ways, quite slow moving. You know, this, the start of this process, which wasn't actually the start of the process, the start of this timeline is 2018. But actually, 
the entire industry has been reeling still from the effects of 2008 and 2009, um, major outage in 2016 of big consumer bank. Numerous outages have kind of slowly but inexorably led the regulatory uh, focus towards making sure we don't keep messing up. We, we as an industry don't keep messing up our customers' day-to-day uh, -day living. And also, you know, we know that there are some imminent timelines around, um, you know, FCA rules, PRA rules, DORA that are coming in. But certainly even the introduction of those regulations isn't the end of the story, that there's often a period of time where these, you know, are adopted by organisations and also they work out how they're, how they're able to um, in practice deploy these regulations and we're certainly seeing more and more of activity right now against how do we practically evidence and deal with these regulations. Yeah absolutely uh, an, an interesting thing to note is actually in this case the, the UK regulatory regime has been um, more proactive in pursuing yeah. the operational resilience agenda and in some senses, the, the DORA regulation that everyone's talking about that's coming out of the EU is actually a couple of steps and several months, a couple of years behind yeah. what the PRA and the FCA, the Bank of England, have already been pushing for in the UK. And further down the pipe again, um, the US regulator, the Fed, is also looking at operational resilience, but it's not yet as far advanced as in Europe and the UK. So there are agendas and timelines um, that differ depending on which jurisdictions you operate in. Uh, it's worth also pointing out that the, the European legislation doesn't just affect Europeans. For instance, mm. um, the Canadian Canadian banks generally follow the European yeah. regulatory agenda. So the, the, the implications of this are quite far reaching. But And if, and if you're a global organisation, you have to be a, a, an understanding of all the regulations in whichever, whichever domain they're in as well. Absolutely. And I think the direction of travel is, is unmistakable. Um, we know that are, doesn't yeah. necessarily isn't why you solve the problem. Um, the benefits are not only in being able to respond to the regulation, but one thing that regulation can be really helpful in doing is to sort of set a structure around what to focus on and what to look at. Um, and certainly, Dora is an example of that, where they have these really clear um, pillars to look at, to concentrate your um, your activity around as well. Yeah, that's right. I think um, ICT risk, of, of course, we're in, the, we're in the financial services space, so we don't talk about IT, we talk about ICT, um, but it's the same thing. Uh, I think it's, it's, clear to, it's clear to imagine, it's quite easy to imagine the, the effects of, you know, a payment gateway not being available or, or your current account system or your mobile app not being available. But there are other ICT systems within firms that, that never see the light of day by end users, but are nonetheless critical to the operations of the bank or the insurer or the, the fintech. Things like the internal underwriting system, which again is ne never seen by an end user, but if you can't underwrite, if you can't um, assess the risk, the counterparty risk of whoever is wanting to open an account or take out a mortgage or a loan or insure a property, um, you can't provide that service. And that's an important business service, which is underpinned by a critical I ICT system. One of the interesting ones, I think, um, again, we've, we've spoken about information and intelligence sharing. I think that's just good, good corporate hygiene within the community uh, in which we're all facing the same challenges and the same 
the same problems, the same failure modes, and the same catastrophic potential outcomes. I think it makes sense. But one of the really interesting ones for me is that third-party risk management. I think I think that is a, a very unique part of the DORA legislation, which um, really needs to be understood and scrutinised in, in in a lot of detail. Because yeah. I think maybe on the next slide, I think yeah, um, I know that we've talked about you know internally around that third-party risk, especially with a view to things like concentration density. Mm. And I think when you talk about the outages, some of the outages we talked about in CDN around Fastly's outage that showed a concentration density where an outage of one company affected many, many really um, significant and really, you know, often accessed and relied upon services right across the, the industry as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting. I agree to dive into this third party risk management and some of the key requirements. Yeah, I think, I think the regulators, it, it's clear to see they're extremely eager to bring these third parties under their regulatory umbrella. So these, these third parties are not themselves firms over which the regulator has any authority. They can't withdraw a license to operate from Amazon or Microsoft Azure. They, they, they can't do that. It's not how it works. However, the regulated firms, the firms over whom they do have regulatory authority and oversight, um, can be made to consider the risk of using third-party services. But I think the reason these third-party service providers or critical third-party providers, CTPPs, as the language of the legislation calls them, is again just a natural outpouring of this desire to consume specialised solutions from service providers and vendors who have been very successful at creating market niches and products to serve the, the entire industry. It's, it's a form of specialization and outsourcing that introduces this third-party risk. And this isn't a sudden thing, but I think it's reached a point of criticality within firms where, like I said, you, you can purchase a core banking system from a software vendor. Now, you didn't build that, but you bet your boots, the regulator is going to hold you responsibility for its availability and its uptime. And often these, these providers are in competition with each other, so it's not natural in their... DNA to work together to provide ways of resiliently swapping or porting. You know, we talk about portability, I guess, in the technology world. Of they don't necessarily want you to um, easily be able to swap to a to a different uh, uh, company services because they're also competing against that organisation. So regulation helps to gel some of that and make that more you know ahead of the agenda, which is hard for individual companies and hard for the vendors themselves, I guess, to, to approach as well. I think that's true. I think um, when we talk about things as a service, I think there is a distinction between the lower levels of that taxonomy, the infrastructure as a service, and even to an extent certain platforms as a service, where the technology has become commodified, uh, yeah. commoditized. Um, so we can quite I won't say easily, in a straightforward way, we can imagine how we would take VMs, virtual machines that we are consuming on-prem and substitute those with virtual machines that we are consuming from a cloud provider. Um, as we move up the stack into platforms as a service, can we really move our container platform or our, managed, or our SQL database into managed cloud offerings in that space? Many times, yes, but often there are wrinkles. And then once we start consuming software as a service, we generally don't have any control where it runs if we're consuming 
fuel SaaS products. Yeah, so because of the challenges we talked about earlier and that explosion of applications, you know, just maintaining, you know, one of the the core parts of the regulation is maintaining that up-to-date register of applications, dependencies of that and their locations. That's an incredibly challenging thing to do when you have that diversity. And then being able to map that not only within what you control and own in your own environment, but across all of those third-party environments and how you what happens when one of those third parties has an outage and how you recover between your environments those are not those are challenges that seem simple just you know get a list and whatever but are incredibly difficult to manage in the real world no absolutely right and i, I think you've hit, you've also hit on something that we we come across in our consultancy as we as we assist companies on their cloud adoption journeys which is something we do at cloudsoft um, and that is the mindset has to change. The best practices in the cloud, for example, are not the same as the best practices that have made us successful managing systems on-prem. The procurement processes that made us successful, the accounting practices, the financial space is entirely different. We've moved from a CapEx model to an OpEx model. We've moved from a centralized uh, command and control structure to a decentralized one. And actually we, we really have to rethink our best practices and our, our operating models. Yeah, and it's quite interesting, Gartner talk about resilience is not only being the ability to bounce back from a problem, but actually preparing to get better in any endeavor. So it's not just resetting to where you are, but actually preparing yourself to be even better in the future, so respond better. And, and yeah. that's also challenging because, you know, it's not just about um, fixing the problem, it's actually fixing it in such a way that next time your your ability to be resilient is is, is actually improved, not just not just there. Mm. So, and I like your your comment that a continuous resilience is is really that mindset that says this is going to be complex. It's going to need continuous improvement, and really at the core of that is understanding that. Failures are inevitable across that environment. You cannot, you know, you cannot control every piece of your environment. And that third-party um, element that we talked about—that's a huge reason why, because you don't actually often control those third parties as well. Indeed. And I think as well, unfortunately, it's not a one-and-done job either, is it? It's a, it's a continual cycle of orchestration as well. Indeed, and this is where the mindset change comes in. We always have to be continually adapting. Um, I guess the process starts on the left. We need to know what we're looking at, identify and protect, understand how architecture and tooling and all the, the vast arsenal of, of te technology can help us in that process. We have to anticipate that things will break. And you know, you said on the, we said on the previous slide that failure is inevitable. That doesn't mean system outages are inevitable. And we, we have to yeah. use uh, good, good hygiene, good architecture, good practices, and sharp tools to ensure that failures of individual parts of the machine don't bring down the whole machine. Um, and to that I, point, because we've been a little bit, it's been a little bit doom and gloom about how complex it is <laughs> and how challenging this could be to this point. But I guess one of the good things that is that that there are tools that are starting to try and help organisations solve this problem as well. Um, mm. You know, and I guess, you know, and again, I, I, you know, there are different opinions about Gartner, but one of the things that it does really well is try and contextualize and groups tools and 
into particular areas so so we can describe them and they they are beginning to describe these tools as digital platform conductors and it's really interesting to say to look at their definitions because they're sort of saying now that it, this is not a new tool set and it's not something that you're going to replace your existing tool set with we really need tools that work with what you have already and actually increase your maturity and are flexible and to able to adapt to what you have now but also what you've got in the future as well um and, and yeah. you know i think what i really love about the digital platform conductor is that sense of conducting from the top and i think that that really accords with those um conversations in the regulation about that critical business service approach doesn't it absolutely i think i think as technologists and i'm a total nerd so i, I include myself in this <laughs> category we have a tendency to fixate on you know the the blinky lights and the the shiny the shiny devices in the data center and we become a bit obsessed with that but at the end of the day the infrastructure exists not as an end in itself but as a means to an end and that and that end is to run applications but those mm -hmm. applications those those workloads also don't exist as an end in themselves they exist to serve the business and at the end of the day everything exists to provide so 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 the business can provide its important business services and that's why the regulation is written the way it is everything starts at the top and flows from that provision of service to users who need who need those services it doesn't matter if they're underpinned by IT but let's be honest in 2021 everything is underpinned by IT of some form and that, that accords with that idea that every business now is a digital business in some respect as well mm -hmm. um, and you know we just tying it back to that kind of strategic importance sort of real business bottom line is we see those bottom line benefits coming in all sorts of ways don't we so firstly of course that reduction in recovery time when things go wrong and that mm. that ability to have people focusing on innovation rather than a problem that's happened and um, certainly important but also that ability to sort of manage your applications in a more automated way it is really impossible automation you know automation is no longer let's make quicker what individuals used to be able to do automation is about being able to really replace and do more than individuals could ever do and that that complexity that we've seen that's only sort of arrived because we have the ability of some of these tools to deal with to deal with these problems at a scale that we also could never have dealt with before as well Oh, absolutely. I mean, te all technology is, is a lever. It's a force multiplier to make us more effective. It doesn't matter if we're talking about farming or manufacturing or finance or IT. Um, and when you have strong automation, you can deliver strong service level agreements. You can have extremely short recovery time objectives. So not only can you, re you reduce the incident of the incidence of small failures leading to catastrophic system failures, you can also reduce the duration of catastrophic system failures when they do occur. And as you rightly point out, Vicky, we can um, redeploy those scarce human resources to jobs which are much more suited to humans, not babysitting servers and networks, but actually designing and thinking up new products that will make the businesses successful. And these tools that allow you to kind of orchestrate this all together to achieve these sort of business critical solutions 
are allowing you to, to kind of approach that from a much more top-down journey, which is great because as well, your competitors are doing that. So while our RTOs that we're talking about today, well, you could be world leading, that only that may only exist for a certain period of time as your competitors are also improve, continuously improving their environments as well. I feel we could talk about this all afternoon, but I guess uh, we've, we've used well, up we our time. Have, we, spend, we spend a lot of time doing that already. Um, really interesting uh, conversation, Alistair. I hope everyone else found it in, interesting as well. And thank you for those of you who, who listened to our conversation today. Really happy to take questions on that. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for your presentation. We have some time for uh, questions, comments, and answers. Um, and we've got a question, uh, a couple of quite linked questions from Liz Swassel in the audience. Um, could you just briefly describe what it is that the CloudSoft tools do? Uh, is it a dashboard? Is it a, um, a set of monitoring tools? What, what do the tools do that you might implement? I am happy to pick that one up. We, we have built a a really very extensive automation platform and we built that from the perspective of applications at the top rather than infrastructure at the bottom and everything else flows from that so um, our application management platform can not only deploy application stacks from a, a description a blueprint but it will continually mo monitor and manage them uh, post deployment throughout the entire life cycle of the app including um, fixing failures when they occur component level failures again before they escalate to become systemic failures um, and that that automation is entirely extensible can be user customized um, you can represent and manage systems of all stripes including hardware systems uh, and software stacks running on the data center on bare metal servers or in container platforms or on the big public cloud platforms as well so we've we've been pushing this approach for several years before digital operational resilience uh, was really on the agenda. Um, we didn't set out to build a specific operational resilience tool, but a very strong automation tool. But I think that the marriage of those two concerns is uh, quite quite obvious to see how one benefits the other. And our tool also, I, I guess, Alistair, one of the, the real things when it comes to regulation is you know, many organisations, it's not just about doing it, but it's also showing to regulators that they yeah. have done it and when that they've done it. And, and you know, I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about um, policies and how they can mm. help organisations look at this across the board kind of regulation. That's a very good point. Uh, yeah, um, everything in CloudSoft AMP is, is a code artifact. Um, so the, the structure of the application is described as a, as a code document. The, the interdependencies are also described. And as Vicky says, the, the management behavioural responsibilities are also described in the form of policies which are attached at various levels of the blueprint um, and in so doing everything is codified so you can respond to a failure either by notifying someone or by taking remediative action automatically without human involvement and because it's basically codified at this point we can first of all we can test it in non-production environments and actually prove that it works but also we can keep an audit trail of everything that the tool has done so that we can evidence to the regulator Yes, we have these measures in place. We can show that they work, and we can not only show that they worked in in, in dev tests, but we can actually show that they had an effect uh, last month in production when a disk failed, but the database recovered, and and our customers suffered zero outage, zero downtime. Um, everything is recorded as 
as you would expect from a, an enterprise software system, and, and that evidence can be curated and presented to the regulator whenever they want to see it. I, th I think uh, also I... That, that, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a little here, but I think there's a principle of we, we iterate over things that are painful. We, we did this with, um, you know, releasing new versions of software. We've, we've, we've got strong automation for that, not, not CloudSoft, I mean, we as a community. And, and CICD and DevOps became a thing. And that didn't happen overnight because we had to learn how to break that cycle of pain of not releasing often because it was so painful. Um, and I think the resiliency angle, anticipating and testing failure modes, is painful. But th I think that's a reason to do it more often so that the pain comes in smaller chunks until eventually we don't, we don't notice that it's painful at all and the tools are doing much of the heavy lifting. Okay. Um, Ian Sheridan's asked a question about <coughs> cloud risk concentration. Um, have you got any pointers as to how a business might decide on ensuring that there's not too much reliance on a single provider? Is there any, yeah. Are there any good rules of thumb that you should uh, be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, again, the regulators are very concerned about concentration risk. Um, they, they look at Let's, let's take a provider like Microsoft Azure, and they look at that and they think, if the entire financial system was hosted in Microsoft Azure and they went rogue or they had a systemic failure or something, they were compromised by a foreign state actor, that could affect the stability of the entire financial system. And it, you know, at the, when you're talking about nation states as, a, as malicious actors, but also the entire financial machinery of our own nation state, I think it's valid to raise those kind of hypothetical questions. Well, what happens if um, we're not in that situation? You know, just as we're not a one-party state, we're also not in the realm of having a single cloud provider. There are many that you can choose from, and if you choose your services judiciously, and by which I don't mean just using the lowest common denominator, but if we if we conform to certain standards, some of which exist, like SQL and you know. Um, container standards, the OCI or Docker, Kubernetes, these are all great standardized platforms on which to run things and they are they are offered um, by people who are very competent at running those systems, um, Kubernetes platforms or managed SQL databases. Um, even you know in the kind of more cutting edge spaces, I'm thinking about you know blockchain platforms and AI ML, standards are developing the communities are coalescing around, at least in the ML space, open source around Python and um, other uh, open source machine learning frameworks. And um, by coalescing on those, you kind of hedge your bets. You, you, you have the ability to move in a way that um, you can start to consume a managed service from another provider, knowing that they will be supporting the same community standards that you have become tied to. Uh, as you get more specialized, and obviously there's, there's plumbing on the various cloud platforms, you know, your identity and access management, your monitoring, your alerting, your observability, your logging, they all vary slightly. Uh, I think where, where possible, introduce tooling that abstracts that. Um, another big elephant in the room, and I, I, I mention that because it's a big heavy thing, and that is the amount of data that you collect. And firms are increasingly amassing large volumes of data, much of it transactional, in order to provide you know, the business as usual functions of the bank or the firm. Much of it is historical and is then, you know, kept for long periods of time, either because the regulator demands it or because the firm believes we can mine it. It will be the new oil. We can we can get some some value out of this at a later date. 
and the sheer volume of that data and the gravity it it doesn't just have mass it has gravity systems want to be pulled towards where this data lives so that naturally creates a very complicated heavyweight um risky proposition when you think about well how do we move it how do we move it out of our data center uh and if and you're so using I'm sorry vicky go ahead please yeah sorry i was just going to say as well i mean some of the principles that we have built into our tool is that layer of abstraction to use the tools that are best for the job at hand but at a level of abstraction so you're able to move between those tools and also i guess fundamentally because we incorporate um our tool looks from the design stage right into the runtime stage as well looking at the whole life cycle of your applications and building in that portability that we talked about is is actually is absolutely you know critical in terms of doing that and we're not saying that necessarily you need to do that for absolutely every application but alongside the regulations identifying those critical business systems and working on those uh, at a layer of abstraction and building in that recovery and resilience at the design stage and right through the life cycle is probably some of the tenants that that we've certainly built our tool around yeah i yeah i don't disagree <clears throat> Um, Anthony Abel has just um, put a question to put a note in just to thank you for your presentation. Uh, and Terry Downing has just noted um, or commented that uh, integrated business um, services are probably the important focus rather than mm. which technology you're, you're working on. It's actually how, how have you integrated the, the services you have. Um, just a question about um, learning organization, I guess. They, you know, we've been talking about learning organizations now for many, many years. Yeah. I just wonder whether you uh, had any good example, good example or a case study, a mini case study of an organization that you think, or, or an approach to learning uh, from mistakes that you think has been pretty successful. Oh, wow. Put us on the spot. <laughs> what, what a great question. Um, oh. I think, I mean, I'd probably prompt, hopefully prompt uh, Alistair on this as well, but I think that that kind of, how does an organization learn in this incredibly complex environment? And I think, you know, we, you know, our tool, one of the things that we really believe in is modeling and blueprinting what you do. So you can, you can um, look at the component parts of what, they do and make those repeatable and continually improvable upon and that's really difficult if you have all of these component parts in very different places so as Alistair talked about things like code codifying all of this and having that code in a central place allows you to take the learning repeat it extend on it share it and understand and continually build on what you've improved and learned already so that definition of resilience in terms of not only fixing the problem but also getting better and better you know we would say that codifying and sharing blueprints and really looking at you know your systems and and you know i did absolutely agree with the point of how your systems work together and interact with each other it's all got to be in there to be able to improve on it and that's a very different model to some of the things that we've done before and that we we sort of separated into kind of
different projects and different environments um, and you know an element of simplifying them into simple projects I think is good but I am very fond of composability mm. so you can break these down into essentially Lego blocks that you can build up yeah. and, and improve. I think I've got a couple of things to add to that and it's absolutely on, on the money uh, Vicky but I think we, we do have to learn and grow and we have we have to kind of capture this knowledge I think there are two different kinds of knowledge so there's that subject matter expertise that that affects down down in the weeds how do we you know administer administer a server how do we install software securely how do we manage encryption keys and storage that subject matter expertise that is down down at the bottom but then where solution architecture and enterprise architecture has a role to play as well how do we structure the overall system so that it's highly available and fault tolerant even when things are failing at the lower levels and i think um, a tool like a digital platform conductor, certainly ours, is able to represent, is able to curate that knowledge at both levels, the subject matter expertise in the details and the architectural patterns kind of higher up. Um, the second thing I wanted to say is we absolutely have to learn from failure, but we don't have to restrict that to learning from our own failures. And I'm sure that when Facebook went offline for a day because of a third party service, the caching layer, um, uh, and it, Facebook went offline, not just for people surfing the web, but for Facebook's own employees. They couldn't enter the building because they had ate their own dog food and left themselves completely stranded, um, which is quite humorous, but also a bit of a wake-up call for people, for firms who had maybe considered similar, um, it's, it's not quite Skynet, but it does seem very self-referential uh, and very dangerous and very risky. And I'm sure that uh, that very high-profile failure of a very large um, company made a lot of firms realize holy moly we're in a similar situation with regards to our dns provider which or our certificate renewal all of these things which are generally invisible like the cash but when they go wrong oh boy do they cause outages well thank you very much we are i'm afraid out of time um so <laughs> i'm sure we could continue the conversation but maybe have to do that on, on another day another occasion um so i've got a, a few uh, thank yous obviously thank you to the audience um thank you for coming along and supporting uh, the fs club webinar series uh thank you again to our sponsors um who i say very very openly allow us to range uh, very widely uh, across a whole range of interesting topics uh, we have some, uh, obviously, a continuing series of webinars uh, coming up, um, forthcoming events um, so, uh, about markets and supply chains, uh, that's uh, tomorrow. Launch of the Smart Centres Index on Monday, um, how the European Union is doing, um, and the Employee Share Schemes and Trustees Conference on the 1st of December. So um, a rich programme coming up, um, and please do keep an eye on the website for uh, other things that are uh, are coming up. Um, Ian Sheridan has just put a note of thanks into the question, so um, thank you very much for that and for the uh, answer to his question. Um, and finally, thank you to you, uh, Vicky and Alistair, uh, for an overview of um, Dora and the way in which we can uh, increase resilience, um, hopefully at not too great a cost, um, as we go forward um, with with the increasing use of third party and cloud systems. Um, throughout our, our business. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, in a normal event, I'd be able to throw this open for a round of applause to the audience. Uh, we don't have that option uh, on the platform, so you'll have to make do with a very small round of applause uh, from me instead. Uh, but thank you very much uh, for your presentation this afternoon.
Thank you too. Yes, thanks, okay. Mike, and thanks, thanks for your members for for joining and for making the conversation so engaging. Super. Um, thanks. We'll see you all again another time. Um, but for this afternoon, um, thank you all very much. Bye bye.